All right, I think it's about time. Might have a few seconds yet, but we'll go ahead and get started. Um, let's get started this morning with a word of prayer, and then uh, we are going to uh, do the doctrine of God today, part one of the doctrine of God, okay? So let's open with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for the beautiful sunshine, and uh, we just thank you for the opportunity to uh, be here together and just to look into your word today to talk about, talk about the doctrine dealing with you, Lord, and just uh, pray that you would help us to understand uh, you better, uh, to, to fall more and more in love with you each day, and to just give you our complete worship. And we just uh, pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Doctrine of God, uh, the technical name for it is theology proper. Uh, as I mentioned back in the introductory class, uh, most, most people uh, do one of two things when it comes to the doctrine of God. They, uh, a, lot of, a lot of theologians will include the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit inside the doctrine of God as kind of a, uh, uh, you know, kind of a sub uh, you know, genre. Others do them as separate, uh, you know, kind of chapters on their own. Well, that is kind of how we are going to handle it. So for the next couple weeks, we're going to talk about the doctrine of God. And of course, as we do that, we'll talk a little bit about Christ and a little bit about the Holy Spirit. Uh, but mostly we're going to focus on the Godhead in general um, or on God the Father, okay? Uh, so, so that's kind of going to be where we're going to be at today. Now, what's involved in talking about the doctrine of God? Well, one thing, it's, it's talking about God's attributes, okay? Uh, you know, that, that's probably the major focus of the doctrine of God is the attributes of God. Now, why is that important and what is an attribute? Let me define an attribute for you here. Um, and, and today we're going to use, uh, I mentioned before, we're going to use probably three different uh, systematic theologies as we go through this. Uh, Ryrie's basic theology, Millard Erickson's Christian theology, and Norman Geisler's uh, four-volume systematic theology. We're going to mostly use Geisler today because he is very good at definitions. He's a, a, he was a philosopher uh, by, by trade, uh, and so he puts a, a, a real emphasis on Definitions. So we're going to we're going to do uh, we're going to mostly deal with Dr. Geisler here this morning. Um, let me read uh, what is an attribute of God. By attribute is meant something characteristic that can be attributed to God's nature, an essential trait of God. Other terms for attribute are property, perfection, or name. Uh, names of God is an older term, uh, uh, a term that was used basically in medieval times you know, a lot was that they would call these things, you know, different names of God. Uh, you know, but, but you also see that, property, perfection, and names. But for the most part, uh, attribute. And he says here, attribute will be used both because it is something attributable to God and because it is a customary term. Now he mentions something here that, that's it's important, and I want us to kind of just think about this a little bit as we get into this, this study. He says, few if any studies are more important than that of the attributes of God. There are many reasons for this. And, and then he goes on to list uh, some of those reasons. I want to kind of deal with some of those here this morning. One, virtually all major doctrines are based on the doctrine of God. 
when we talk about the, the Bible as God's word, well, that means nothing if we don't have God. You know, if we talk about Jesus as the Son of God, well, then there has to be God, the Father. Same way with the Holy Spirit. And you guys get the picture, on and on and on. If the, kind of the linchpin for everything is the doctrine of God. You know, you hate to put any particular doctrine you know, like ahead of any others, but if there's any that is kind of the, the most important, it really is probably this one, you know, the, the doctrine of God, because everything else is kind of bound together uh, with this doctrine. Um, another thing is in order to, to recognize false gods, you have to know the true God. You know, we, we do a lot of, of things by comparison when it comes to, you know, to recognizing what is false, you know, and, and so if you don't know what the Bible says about God, you can't recognize if something is false in, in something else, or something is false even in, in what is supposedly a Christian teaching. You know, you have to, you know, here, here's the best kind of defense against bad doctrine, good doctrine. I mean, you know, that's just the reality of things. You know, if churches want to guard their doctrine, if they wonder why they have doctrinal problems at times and, and debates within their, their congregation, well, then teach good doctrine. Do that more often. That's why at the beginning of this series, we read a, a series of verses that basically says the job of pastors and elders, you know, one of, one of the main jobs is to teach the doctrine. You know, that, that's, that's what it's there for. Uh, you know, and so... If you're going to recognize what is false, you have to recognize what is true. Let me read uh, a, a couple other reasons this is important. Again, I'm going to go back to, to Dr. Geisler's commentary here this morning. And I thought these were, were very interesting, uh, particularly this first one here. It says, error has practical co uh, consequences. In his excellent book, Ideas Have Consequences, Richard Weaver lays out the answers to the questions of why one's beliefs are important. His reasoning applies with even greater force to ideas about God. A brief look at, the history, at, at history tells us the often tragic tale of the results of beliefs. Hitler's fascist ideas cost more than 20 million lives during the Holocaust. Stalin's Marxist ideas eventually liquidated at least 18 million people. Chairman Mao's communist ideas eliminated over 30 million. And when one's belief, uh, beliefs involve God, an even more important consequence lies in the balance, the timeless souls of billions. Theological uh, ideas have long-lasting consequences that mere political ideas, uh, more long-lasting consequences than mere political ideas. They have eternal consequences. Yeah, so I thought that was a great point. You know, it is important what we understand about God because what we believe is important. It has real implications for how we live our lives and what we do. And all you have to do is look through history to see that. You know, and, and, and so if we really believe what the Bible says about, you know, if you don't put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will spend eternity separated from God in hell. Well, then what we believe has meaning. You know, and so it's important to understand what we believe about God. Another thing, our spiritual growth is dependent upon our concept of God. He quote, quotes A.W. Tozer here. He said, uh, what you think of God is the most important thing about you. 
says, in our spiritual lives, we cannot transcend the God we worship. We can rise no higher than what we believe to be the highest. Our concept of God will have a marked effect on our practical lives. It is a psychological fact that we tend to become like, like what or whom we admire the most. Hero worship produces followers who tend to emulate their idols, whether they are athletes, saints, or gods. Because worshipers become like the gods they worship, our godliness tends to become like our God. Our concept of God will, therefore, define the limits of our godliness. We tend to imitate. And as believers, it, it's funny because when we call ourselves Christians, and you know, this is focusing particularly on Christ, what that means is imitator of Christ or little Christ. You know, that's what the word Christian means. You know, so at the very core of of, of who we are as, as, as believers, you know, is to be disciples of Christ or imitators of Christ. Uh, and, and as he said, you know, our concept of God will tend to have practical consequences in, in our lives and, and, and how, we try to, uh, how we try to be in our lives, the person we try to become. And, and one last thing. True satisfaction can't be found in anything but God. You know, we say that all the time, but do we really believe it? Uh, you know, if, if we really believe it, then our, our, you know, we need to have a proper understanding of who God is. Because if God is the only thing that can truly, you know, define us and satisfy us, then we have to understand what the Bible says about God, what God has said about himself in his word what he's revealed about himself. Um, the second thing, so the first part of, of the doctrine of God is talking about the, uh, you know, the, the attributes of God. Another thing is that this includes, and, and these are, are really part of the attributes of God, but I'm, I'm kind of including them as, as something that is separate because they are so uh, key to what we believe. And this includes the, the study of the unity and the triunity of God. What do I mean by that? that? The unity is that there is one God. The triunity is that within that one God, there is three persons. God is eternally manifested as three persons. You know, and, and, and that great kind of conundrum but yet truth of the Christian faith. No one has ever fully understood that. You know, to understand that completely would be to understand God, and that's not something that we're capable of completely getting a handle on, but we can understand that the Bible teaches this as true. And we can understand that it is not contradictory. And we'll talk more about that uh, as we go today. So this, this includes... Uh, you know, studying the, the unity and the triunity of God. Finally, the third part of it is, is not just talking about the attributes of God, uh, including his unity and triunity, but it is also talking about God's activities. To a certain degree, and, and we won't spend a lot of time on this, but we will talk about, at, you know, toward the end of this class, probably toward the end of next week, we will talk about some of the activities of God that Scripture stresses uh, that, that are kind of God's alone, okay? Uh, some of the things that God has done. Now, I want to read a, a brief note here uh, on, on language and kind of how language is used is in, 
you know, in the study of God. You know, the, the Bible talks about God in both metaphysical or, or, in other words, literal ways, and it talks about God in, in metaphorical ways. It says, not all language about God in the Bible is metaphysical or literal. Scripture does employ many metaphorical or anthropological descriptions of attributes to God. God is said to have arms, eyes, and even wings. He is called a rock, a tower, and a shield. The difference between metaphorical and metaphysical attributes of God is found in the nature of God and what is being said of him. Metaphysical attributes, attribution is based on the way God actually is. However, metaphorical attribution of God is not the way God actually is. Uh, it, you know, let me continue on. It says there are several reasons for using metaphorical expressions of God. First, metaphors often inform us what God can do not what he is. They often describe his abilities, not his attributes. Thus, he is like a strong tower or shield that can protect us, or he has uh, wings that can hold us up, etc. You guys get the point. Okay, so we tend to talk about God in two different ways. One, in actual ways, in literal ways, you know, this is what God is, but then we also talk about God in, in metaphorical ways, where we can't necessarily describe exactly what he is, but we can say what he does. And we can use metaphor to do that. Most, uh, in fact, every one I've encountered, uh, every three theologian breaks down the, the, the attributes of God generally into two categories. Now, they, they sometimes do it a little bit differently. Some will talk about communicable attributes. Those are things that God could communicate to his creation. Like when the Bible says he, he created us in his image, that means there's certain attributes of God that he has kind of put within us on like a, a, a much smaller scale, okay? There's others that can't be communicated. They are simply God's essence. This is what he is, and that cannot necessarily be communicated to us. Uh, others separate the attributes in, into kind of the way uh, Dr. Geisler is doing here, uh, you know, as metaphysical attributes uh, or, or, you know, more metaphorical. Um, others talk about the moral and non-moral attributes. But basically, every theologian does this because God's attributes tend to be communicated in slightly different ways and, and, and teach slightly different things. And so that's kind of what he's getting at. Uh, with this section. Let me continue to read. It says, second, metaphors communicate what God is like in an indirect and non-literal way. The non-literal actually depends upon the literal. We know God is not literally a stone since we know that he is literally an infinite spirit, and a stone cannot, uh, can be neither infinite nor uh, spirit. But once we know that God is not literally a stone, a metaphor does tell us what he literally is, namely stable and immovable. That's the point of saying that you know, God is a, a stone or, or something like that. Third, metaphors, similes, and other figures of speech are often evocative. Even though they are not literally descriptive, that is, they do not literally and directly describe God, even so they do evoke a response to him, while metaphysical descriptions often do not. Hence, metaphors are frequently used in the Bible because God wants a response from us. And he gives a couple examples here. One, the, the, the literal truth about God is God is omnipotent. God has all power. 
Here's how the metaphor is used to describe this. This is Jeremiah 49, 19. Who is like me and who can challenge me? And what shepherd can stand against me? Well, that's saying the same thing. It's saying that God is omnipotent. But it's saying it in a way that we can kind of visualize it and it evokes a response from us as the listener. And that's what God wants, okay? He gives another example. God is omniscient. God has all knowledge. From Hebrews 4.13, everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You guys get the picture of, how, of what I'm talking about here, how this works. You know, God uses metaphor there instead of simply saying, I'm omniscient. God uses a metaphor for his omniscience because that evokes a response from us. He's saying, hey, everybody's going to have to give an account to me someday, and nothing is hidden from me. So that evokes a response. You know, it makes us feel like, wow, I, I, I really need to come clean with God. I really need to live a different type of life. Okay, so you guys see, see the picture. Um, let me just continue reading for a little bit here. It says, in addition to figures of speech, the Bible employs three basic kinds of metaphorical statements about God. And I'm not going to give you the big, long Greek word for all these. I'll give you the first one. The second one, I think, is like 16 letters long, and the third one is, is like 13 letters long. So I won't bother you with the, the Greek word. I'll just give you kind of what they describe. It says, first of all, there's anthropomorphism. Any reason I'm going to give you that, that one's like 17 letters long. Any reason I'm going to give you that one is because we've talked about that one before. That depicts God in human form, such as having eyes, ears, arms. The next, you, you know, and, and this is, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, uh, but basically the next form uh, pictures God as having uh, changing human feelings like anger and grief. And the third form uh, pictures uh, God as having attributes to, uh, 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 to, attributes to God, human actions such as repenting and forgetting. None of these are intended as literally true or to take them as such can lead to serious error. And he gives a couple examples. The Lord repented can lead to a denial of God's immutability, which means he's unchanging. The eyes of him, talking about the eyes of God, can lead to a denial of God's immateriality, that God is a spirit. And, so, and I'll tell you, through the years, you wouldn't believe the amount of conversations I've had with people like in classes and outside of classes, about, well, wait a minute, you know, how, how's this work when it says that God repented about this or, or God forgets this? Like, God can't forget, can he? No, God can't forget. That is a form of metaphorical speech. It is attributing certain things to God that, that we understand as human beings. And, 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 you know, and you have to get the point of what God's trying to say with that, Okay. And if you don't, like he said, you can make some serious theological errors, uh, and through the years, many people have, have done that. So with that said, let's get into the, to some of the attributes. We are going to try, we're going to talk today about the unity and, and the triunity of God. Uh, we are also going to try to talk about uh, a number of other attributes to God. Uh, we're going to try to get 10 covered total today including the unity and triunity of God. Uh, we'll see how well we do with that. Uh, but, but most of what I want to talk about today are attributes that focus on kind of the, the, 
who God actually is. These are, are things that are important for us to understand, you know, God. They're kind of like the building blocks of the, of the doctrine of God. Let's start with God's actuality. What's it mean when we talk about God's actuality? Now, what I'm going to do with, with each of these is I'm going to read a definition to you from, from Dr. Geisler's uh, systematic theology, then we're going to discuss it a little bit, and then I'm going to give you some verses that teach what we're talking about, okay? That seemed like the easiest way to do this. So what's it mean when we say the actuality of God? And you're going to notice on a lot of these, they're very close in meaning, but they're not quite the same, okay? And that's kind of what's important about them. They, they all kind of stress slightly different things, even though they're very close, so actuality, by actuality is meant that which is, an, is in act or that which is existence. This is the, in contrast to potentiality, that which can be, namely a potential for existence. Pure actuality then is that which is existence with no possibility to not exist or to be anything other than it is, existence, pure and simple. Okay, when we talk about God's actuality. We mean that God exists by his very nature. He has no potential. There's never been a time he didn't exist, and, that, and we'll get into to, to some other things here that stress that fact, and it, but he has no potential not to exist. Okay, it's pure existence, pure actuality, all right? Pure actuality has no potential for non-existence, and it has no potential for change. If it could change, then it would have to go out of existence. You know, God, well, the Bible teaches over and over that God cannot change. It's actually one of the most taught things about God, that God is unchanging. Why is that? Well, there's two things. One, he is pure existence. You know, for, for him to change would literally be not to exist. And two, he is perfection. God is perfect, and we'll get into that next week. But God is perfect, and anything that is perfect, if it changes anything at all, it is no longer perfect. Perfect can't get better. There's no improvement in perfect. Just like there's no potential in what is actual. Now, I realize some of this is very philosophical. Unfortunately, that is the way really good theology is. It has to be at its very nature. Uh, you know, and, and so the first thing we have to understand about God is God is pure existence. You know, he, he, there's no potential in God at all. That, that idea, and that is a, a, a huge, you know, a, a huge error. It's actually a great debate that is going on in Christianity right now because some kind of more liberal theologians are, are going toward what is called process thought or process theology. Uh, the, the, you know, the idea that God is always changing, God is, is, is growing somehow. But in order to do that, you have to jettison historic theology about God and what has always existed. You know, what, what the church has always believed about God. In fact, and with every one of these attributes we're going to talk about, that one, one of the things that I love about his particular, you know, theology, he goes then and points to the beliefs of people going the whole way back to the early church fathers and the whole way up through modern theologians. Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, 
all of them agree in, in every one of these that we're talking about. Okay? So, you know, it, it's, um, these, these are well-established, you know, beliefs about the doctrine of God. And so some are trying to abandon those things uh, in order to try to make the doctrine of God kind of more easily accessible to people. But in doing so, you kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater. Okay? So that's, that's kind of a, something that's going on right now. So God is pure existence. There's never been a time where he hasn't existed. He has no potentiality for non-existence or for change. He is who he is, and he is, is perfect. And, and, and uh, let's look up a, a couple of verses dealing with this. Let's just start with the first ver- verse of the Bible. And we'll come back to this a couple times today. But there's a lot of implication to the very beginning of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, in the beginning of what? In the beginning of everything that is created. In the beginning of everything that was created, God created them. What does that logically imply? God was there before anything else was created. That's essentially what it's teaching, that that God has always existed, and then God brought other things into existence. And all that exists was brought into existence by God. So he is before it all. God existed before all those things. Turn over to, uh, well, look at at the closest one is Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. And we all know this, you know, most of us have seen the Ten Commandments at one point. You know, we, we, we've, we all, you know, we've all heard this. God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has, has sent you. Again, God stressing his self-existence. Not I was, not I came to be, not I will be, I am. I am has sent you. Interestingly enough, one of the things about Jesus is Jesus essentially quoted this same thing in reference to himself uh, in, in John uh, uh, chapter, I think it's chapter, yeah, John chapter 8, verse 58, uh, you know, Jesus was asked about this and you know, he said, you know, before Moses was, I am. People picked up on it, like we don't always pick up on it, but it riled everybody up like right away as soon as he said it. People were like picking up stones and like, hey, we got to, you know, this guy, this guy's a blasphemer. Yeah, so they got the point of what he was saying. You know, he, he, self-existence. Pure existence. All right, let, um, I have a couple others, but just for sake of time, let's move on. Next thing I want to talk about is God's simplicity. Now, I know the first thought we think when we think of God's simplicity is what? God's hard to understand. It's not simple. That's not what we're talking about by simplicity. When we're talking about a simple being, we're talking about a being that cannot be divided. There are no parts within him. Um, again, let me, let me read an exp- explanation of this from Dr. Geis over here. 
Simple means without parts, for what has parts can come apart. That's a neat kind of little way to understand it. What has parts can come apart. Simple also means indivisible. That is, God is not capable of being divided. There are no seams in God. There, uh, so there is no place in which the fabric of his being can be torn or come apart. Further, God's simplicity means that he is absolutely one. Not only does he have unity, but he is absolute unity. You know, you, you can't take God apart. He, 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 you know, God is not a complex being. You know, we are. The Bible talks about, I mean, obviously we can come apart. Most people have had surgery at one point or another. They've taken a part of you, you know. When we die, the Bible says our soul is separated from our spirit. In death, we come apart. God will reunite them someday, but in death, we come apart. God cannot. There's, there's no way for God to be separated into different pieces. Now, I know you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, aren't the Trinity three pieces? No, no, they're not. They're one essence, one nature, always eternally one nature. Manifested as three persons, but one nature. Again, we'll talk more about the, the puzzle that is the Trinity here shortly. Let me, uh, and I'm going to edit some of these verses because I've got like too many and we don't have the time to look them all up here today. But uh, let me just start with the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Teaches this, and we'll use this a couple of times for, for several of these things. Um, several of these different verses. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord uh, alone, or some of you have the Lord is one. That's the idea that, that you know, th there's one God, God alone, that they are to worship. That was the, the great uh, spiritual rally cry of Israel. You know, the, the Lord is one. You're to worship God and God alone. That's it. Okay? So God is, is a simple being. Now, something else that goes with that, and this is one that probably, especially when it comes to actuality and, and, and this next one, uh, are ones that most people probably are not used to hearing about. Like, unless you've, you know, unless you've attended like a, like, you know, like a, a college class in theology, you've probably never heard these terms. But the next one is God's aseity. You know, God's aseity. Now, what does aseity mean? And again, you'll notice the similarity in some of these things. Aseity and necessity are kindred attributes. Aseity has to do with God's existence, and necessity has to do with his impossibility of his non-existence. And we'll talk about necessity here next. Aseity comes from the Latin aseit, meaning literally of oneself. Used of God, it denotes that he exists in and of himself, independent of anything else. He is self-existence. Being, being self-existent, however, is not the same as being self-caused. Now, that's important. God did not cause himself. God has always been. It is impossible to cause one's own existence since, again, a cause is ontologically prior to its effect. And something cannot be ontologically prior to itself. Thus, a self-existent being, a being with a seity, is not a self-caused being. 
Rather, a self-existent being is an on-caused being. So the, the, the main point of aseity is that God has no cause. He, he's self-existent. It's very s- similar to actuality, but where actuality talks about God being pure existence, this is talking about the fact that God has, has always existed, it, you know, in and of himself. That's what the word means, of himself. You know, God, God exists of himself. No one else has ever caused God, okay? He's not dependent upon anything or anyone else for his existence. He's not sustained in his existence by anything else. Okay, you guys get, get the point? All right? And we, you know, basically some of the same verses for actuality are, are some of the same verses for aseity. Now, God's necessity, uh, and, and again, uh, th- these are very si- similar, I've, you know, as I've, I've already read to you here that they are, are kind of kindred uh, things, aseity and necessity. So aseity and necessity are closely related, but are incommun- uh, both are incommunicable or non-transferable attributes of God. Both refer to God's unique kind of being. Aseity and necessity are often lumped together by theologians, even though they are distinguishable concepts. A necessary being is one whose non-existence is impossible. That is, if a necessary being exists, then he must exist necessarily. It's not possible that he does not exist. This can be stated in at least four ways. A necessary being is a being whose non-existence is not possible. A necessary being is a being whose existence is essential. A necessary being is a being whose, ex- uh, whose essence is to exist. That's part of his very essence is to exist. Okay? And fourthly, a necessary being is a being whose essence and existence are identical. God exists necessarily. Now, again, this is something that's talked about far more in philosophical circles. Uh, Like, if you've ever watched a really good debate by, like, a a Christian, you know, theologian or philosopher with an atheist philosopher, they, they will talk about this a lot. You know, the Christian philosopher will stress the idea of God as a necessary being. They exi- he, you know, he exists, that's part of his attributes, is, is to exist. And then from that necessary being, all else that exists comes into existence. Uh, I had the, the, the privilege uh, to, to be at a debate one time between uh, a, a Liberty professor, Dr. Gary Habermas, uh, who is, is a, a kind of renowned, renowned Christian uh, philosopher and theologian. He, his expertise was on the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he debated Dr. Anthony Flew, uh, who at one point was considered the world's greatest philosophical atheist. In fact, he was like the atheist that other atheists kind of like genuflected to when, when Flew spoke. Uh, and, and I had the privilege of being at that debate. I didn't understand like half of what was being said. But at least I was there. Uh, you know, but of course, like a lot of what is talked about in those kind of debates is, you know, the necessity of God. You know, God is a necessary being. Um, as an interesting side note, and I just, I think this is awesome, Dr. Flew, toward the end of his life, 
changed from being an atheist to a theist. I don't know if he ever came to accept Christ as his Savior. But I do know he came to believe that God existed. In fact, he wrote a, a, a book that shook the, the kind of the rafters of the atheist, the philosophical atheist world. Uh, he wrote a book. Uh, he, for years he said, there is no God. He wrote a book like the title was, there is no God, and they crossed out no and wrote beside it an A. There is a God. And, and like I said, it just kind of like shook the atheist world to its core when he did that. Um, so, you know, I, I hope he's in heaven. I do not know, but boy, wouldn't it be great. Pretty awesome. So God is a necessary being. And again, Genesis 1-1 is a great example uh, of this. In the beginning, God. Nothing else happens if in the beginning is not God. You know, his existence, you know, is he in and of himself, that's part of his attributes is to exist. Now, I've already mentioned this, so I'm not going to read a definition of this. That The next one is God's immutability, that God does not change, okay, that God is unchangeable. Let's just, let me read just a couple examples. Numbers 23, 19. And there are many, many examples throughout the Bible of, of God's uh, unchangeable nature. And, and interestingly enough, this is Balaam, the false prophet, that, that God essentially makes speak the truth, <laughs> um, no matter how much he didn't want to. And this is what Balaam had to say. God is not man, so he does not lie. He is not human, so he does not change his mind. Has he ever spoken and failed to act? Has he ever promised and not carried it through? You know, he, he is not like us. He doesn't change. Let me read one from the, the New Testament, Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, 8. Gives us a neat connection because Glenn's just talked about these things with us. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. They're talking particularly about Jesus. Uh, and, and people have taken that verse to mean many, many things. Uh, you know, I, I've heard it used in kind of nonsensical ways often that like, well, nothing within, you know, the, the church, you know, changes. Well, that has nothing to do with what the verse is talking about, you know. What the verse is talking about is Jesus does not change because Jesus is God. He can't change. He's immutable. And that should give us great pleasure and and, and great uh, assurance. Think of how terrible it would be if God could change. You know, we're saved by grace. We're saved by the fact that God graciously offered salvation, paid the price for it. Did everything that needed to be done. All we had to do was accept that gift. If God could change, he could just take that back. Well, you guys are a bunch of creeps. I don't want to save you today. Wouldn't that be awful? So, you know, these things sometimes are difficult to, to understand, but they, they are, are the groundwork of our faith. They are who God is, and it's why we can have the assurance that we have. 
why we can have the peace that we have. Next thing is God's eternality. Now, oftentimes God's eternality and his infinity are kind of mistaken by people, but those are two different things. They are dealing with two different, two different things about God. First, let's define eternality. And we're going to move fairly quickly here today if we want to get done with everything we want to get done. God's eternality, another battlefront, and, and by the way, this is a, very much a battlefront in today's modern uh, theology, okay? When, when you know, conservative, Bible-believing theologians debate those who are not so conservative and Bible-believing, this is one of the great debates that they have. Is God eternal? Another battlefront in the current debate about the nature of God is the traditional attribute of eternality or non-temporality. Classical theism affirms that God is above and beyond time. Again, God has no past, present, or future. He simply has an enduring, eternal present. And let me stress that again. You know, we don't often think that way because that's really hard for us to understand. That God has no past, no present, no future. He always is. He always is in his eternal present. God is beyond time. Time has no effect on him. He created time. That is what we were talking about when we were talking about the fact that God is eternal. It's not just that, you know, he didn't have a beginning. It's that he literally is outside of time. Time does not affect him. That doesn't mean he doesn't reach into our world, into our, our you know, we are in time. Yes, he reaches into our world of time and space and matter and he deals with us but that does not like bind him in any way he is outside of that okay the definition of eternality the traditional for traditional theism eternality does not mean time without beginning and endless time that's often how we think about it but that is not what it means in fact the idea of endless time is nonsensical Time had to have a beginning, or it couldn't have a present. Okay, this, this is, you know, this is one of the great kind of philosophical uh, debates. He says, an infinite number of moments is impossible. If an infinite number of moments occurred before today, then today would never have come, since it is impossible to traverse an infinite number of moments. You know. Think of it this way, if there was an infinite number of steps for you to climb, if there's never a starting point, how can you get anywhere? It's, it's, it's not possible. You can't traverse an infinite. There's never a beginning and never an end. There's no place to start. You can't go anywhere. So time had to begin, okay? Yet the time up to today has been traversed. There is no end of an infinite, but today is the end of all previous moments. Today has arrived, hence an infinite number of moments could not have, been, could not have occurred before today. Eternality means non-temporality or timelessness. From beginning to end, the Bible declares that God is beyond time. That God existed beyond time is clear from the very first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
Since time does not begin until the universe begins, this place is God beyond time. Indeed, according to Hebrews, God created time. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, through whom he framed the ages. That's Hebrews 1, 2. The word ages is not a reference to the material nature of the universe, but to the unfolding temporal periods. You know, and then he goes on to say, uh, quote again, Exodus 3.14, God said to, uh, to Moses, I am who I am. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about eternality, that, that God is not affected by time. He is outside of time. God is literally a timeless being. He created time for us. Think of what he told Adam and Eve when he, cre- he created the, the, the stars and, and, and the, 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 the planets and everything out there, and he says, you know, this is for what? The, the, the keeping of the seasons. It's, it's the idea of we mark time. God does not. God helped us with our existence. Think what life would be like if we couldn't mark time. You know, but we can because God's created the means for us to be in time and to understand the passage of time. That does not affect God. He's outside of that. All right, God's impassibility. Impassibility is largely misunderstood and currently greatly debated, a greatly debated attribute of God. Impassibility means that God is without changing passions, but it does not deny that he has different feelings. The root meaning of impassibility is that God is not passable or subject to passion. Uh, God cannot undergo passion or suffering. Nothing in the created universe can make God feel pain or inflict misery on him. This does not mean that God has no feelings, but simply that his feelings are not the results of actions imposed on him by others. His feelings flow from his eternal and unchangeable nature. Neither does impassable mean immobile. God can and does act. How other, however, others do not move him, for he is the unmoved mover of all else. All action in the universe springs ultimately from God. Uh, Acts 17, 28 says, in him, we have, in him we live and move and have our being. In Acts 17, 25, he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. All things come from God. You know, God does feel, but that is part of his makeup, his character. It does grieve God when he sees his children sin, but that's because it's his nature to grieve over our sins. We don't force that upon him. Nothing can force anything upon God. He is an all-powerful being. We can't make God do anything, including feel. What God feels, he feels of his own, because that's his nature. Finally, God's infinity. What's it mean when we say that God is infinite? The term infinite, which means not, not finite, is negative in form, but it, de- it denotes a positive attribute of God. It, God is literally limitless in his being. He is without boundaries. 
a being beyond the limits of the created universe. It, it is only because of the finite nature of our concepts that this positive attribute must be expressed in, a, in negative terms. God's infinity should be uh, distinguished from other concepts of, of infinite. God is not infinite such as is found in mathematics, where there are an infinite number of points between A and B. This is an abstract infinite, not a concrete one, as God is. God is infinite in a metaphysical way, in other words, a literal way, not in a mathematical way. He is an actual infinite being, not an abstract one. So you cannot put limits on God. God is outside the limits of, we already talked about outside of time. He's also outside of, of the limits of his universe, time, space, matter. The things that contain us cannot contain him. That's the point. Whether it's time, whether it's space, whether it's matter. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about the eternality and the infinity of God. Timelessness and not being bound by any limits. Okay? The only things that limit God are, is his own character. God cannot break his own character because he's perfection. Okay? Now, I realize that's like some heavy kind of slogging stuff here this morning. And I apologize, but all of those things are absolutely kind of necessary to truly understand what the Bible says about God. You know, it's the concrete parts of the, the study of the doctrine of God. Now, let's touch on God's unity and his triunity. First, that God is one, the unity of God. The God is one and only one is the great cry of Judaism called the Shema. It is based upon Deuteronomy 6.4, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and was repeated by Jesus in the New Testament. When asked by the Jewish scribes what the greatest commandment was, Jesus replied, the first of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Unity, unity literally means oneness. God is one being in contrast to many beings. There is one and only one God, which is what we mean by monotheism, as opposed to many gods, which is polytheism. There are three related words that should be distinguished. Unity, there, there are not two or more gods. Simplicity, which we've already talked about, there, there are not two or more parts in God. And the triunity, there are three persons in one God. The scriptures affirm God's absolute unity from the beginning to the very end. Uh, let me read a quickly whoop, read a verse here talking about the unity of God. Um, we're just going to pick out one of these. Look at 1 Corinthians 8 4. I always get a little too ambitious and write down a whole bunch of verses and then knowing I'm never going to get to all of them. So what about eating meat that has been offered uh, to idols? Well, we, we all know that an idol is not really a God and there is only one God. Some of, you, some of your translations say an idol is nothing in the world. It, it, it means nothing. There is only one God. Okay? 
The, the idea of God's unity, and, and, and as he said, there's many, many verses that stress that. It's, it's you know, all throughout our, our, our Bibles, from beginning to end, the idea that, that there is one God. What are the implications of this? Let me read some of the implications here. Some implications for God's unity. At least three implications emerge from the oneness of God as opposed to polytheism, tritheism, and idolatry. First, polytheism. If there were more than one God, then polytheism would be true. However, as as we have shown above, there is only one God. Polytheism is false. The unity of God then excludes all forms of polytheism. The fact that we believe there is one God means there cannot be multiple gods. Okay, so we we can exclude that. Tritheism. The oneness of God is opposed to the heresy called tritheism, which alleges that there are three separate beings in the Godhead. Monotheism asserts that there is only one being who is God, not three beings. Hence, God's unity stands against the error of tritheism. That is one of the great errors that people make when it comes to the Trinity. They say, well, there are all three gods, so that means there must be three gods. No, that's not what it means. They are all three God, they're all three persons within the Godhead, but they are not three different beings. They're one being. There's one God. They are one essence, one nature. Okay, that, that, is, that is orthodox Christian theology from beginning to end. All right. In verses idolatry, if one and only being in the universe is God, then only this being is worthy of worship. Nothing else than the ultimate is worthy of an ultimate commitment, which is worship. There is only one God as shown above. Therefore, only this one God should be worshipped and not anything else. The very th- fact that God is a unity, that there is one God, stresses that only one God should ever be worshipped. Only one thing should ever be worshipped. God is the only thing worthy of worship. Now, obviously, the main objection to this, as I, as I mentioned already, was, is the Trinity. And people were like, well, wait a minute. Doesn't the Trinity mean that there are three gods? Let me read uh, uh, you know, what he says about that here. It says, the orthodox Christian response to this charge is that God is three and one in different senses. He is three persons, but he has only one essence or nature. Therefore, it is not a contradiction since it does not affirm that there are three persons and yet only one person in God, or that there are three natures and yet only one nature. See, if if you said that, if you said, well, there's three persons, but there's only one person, well, that would be a contradiction. But if you say there's three persons, but yet only one nature, that's not a contradiction. It's not uh, something we can really, you know, fully grasp. But it's not a contradiction. Okay? How there can be three persons, yet only one nature, is a mystery, but not a contradiction. Uh, and and, and he, he talks about that he will can, you know, go on to show that. Um, <laughs> in the short bit of time we have, we're going to start talking about the Trinity. And we'll, we'll finish this next week. But God's triunity. Let me... Um, let me give a, a definition here for, for the, the Trinity. So you, uh, you probably already got most of it. God is not only a unity, he is a triunity. That is, uh, there is not only one God, 
but there are three persons in that one God. This is the orthodox teaching of the Trinity. First of all, it is important to point out that, there, that what is not meant by the Christian concept of the Trinity. It does not mean there are three gods, which we've just discussed, that's tritheism. And it does not mean God has three modes of one and the same being. That's called modalism. That's the idea that there's just one God, but then one time he acts as the Father, and the next time he acts as the Son, the next time he acts as, as, as the Holy Spirit. No, that is false. That's a heresy called modalism. It's not one God in three different modes. It is one God that has always been manifested as three separate persons. Okay? Tritheism denies the absolute simplicity of God. Modalism denies the plurality of persons in God. The former claims there are three beings in the Godhead. The latter affirms that there are not three persons in the Godhead. What then does the word Trinity mean? It means that God is a triunity. He is a plurality within a unity. God has a plurality of persons and a unity of essence. God is three persons in one nature. There is only one what, which is the essence in God, but there are three who's, that's the persons, in, in that one what. Uh, God has three eyes in his one it. There are three subjects in one object. Guys, kind of get the point, all right? trying to edit on the fly right now. Um, <laughs> let me jump to the end of this, and then we'll come back and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and kind of what the Bible says about them, pointing to the fact that they are all God. And we'll also point to some, some passages where the, the, all three are seen together, okay, you know, teaching, the, you know, the Trinity. Um, but we, we don't have time to do all that today. So let's save that for next week. Um, today, let's look at some of the ways that we tend to talk about the Trinity and some bad illustrations and why they're bad and some, good, some, some better illustrations, okay? First of all, some bad illustrations. And, and you'll have probably heard every one of these things before. One, three states of water. You've often heard, well, water can be in three states, so that's a, that illustrates the Trinity. Well, the problem with that, no individual amount of water, like let's, let's say a drop of water, is never all three things at once. Can't be. Yes, water can be liquid, it can be ice, it can be steam, you know, a gas. But it can't be all three, one drop of water can't be all three at once. So that does not illustrate the Trinity. Okay, if anything, that illustrates modalism. The idea that there's one God that plays three different roles, that is completely wrong. People, and I understand, people are well-meaning when they try to use that as a definition, but it's not a good definition. It actually teaches something completely false. Uh, you know, so, so don't, don't use that one. You know, three links in a chain. Again, there's a problem with that. Yes, they are linked, but they are three completely, you know, different things. They are, they are each their own thing. That, that is tritheism. There are three gods that somehow link themselves together, but that's not what's true of the, of the true God. 
the three links in a chain don't really, that doesn't really work. Okay, again, that's, that's a, a, a bad uh, illustration. An egg. We often use the idea of an egg because an egg can be one thing all at the same time. Problem is, an egg can be separated. All of you who've cooked at one time or another have separated an egg. You know, if you've ever fried it, I, I fried two eggs this morning for breakfast. Cracked the egg, out came both the yolk and the white. Fried them up in a pan and ate them. You can separate eggs, you can't separate God. If you want to really get fun, you can separate them into three. You know, you can crack that old, you know, inside of the egg out in your hand, and you can let that yolk run, you know, stay in your palm and let the white run down through your fingers, and you can separate the white and the, and the yolk. You can't do that with God. So an egg is not a good illustration of the Trinity. If it could never be separated, then maybe, but, but not under the way an egg actually is. And that's the same problem with body, soul, and spirit. We sometimes use, you know, the idea of a human trichotomy, that we are made up body, soul, and spirit. Well, you know, there's a couple potential problems with, one, with that. One, not all theologians agree that we're a trichotomy. Most think we are, are a dichotomy. That means there's two parts to humans, not three. Most theologians believe that the inner part of man uh, is, is just one thing. There's, you know, the physical outside and then there's the inside. And, and the body just uses things like soul, spirit as different ways of saying that same thing. So there's no theological agreement as to whether man has three parts or not. Okay? The second problem is, again, we talked about this back at the beginning, you, we can be separated. When we die, the Bible tells us that our, our inner man, our soul slash spirit, goes to be with the Lord, and our body goes into the grave and turns into dust. Now, one day at the rapture, God will put them all back together and make us whole again. And from that point on, we'll be eternally that way. But as we currently are, we are not a good, necessarily a good illustration of the Trinity. Now, I believe, you know, the idea of who we are as people created in the image of God, there are ways that that can be used to illustrate the Trinity in a much better way, but that gets a little complicated. We're not going to get into that. Augustine uh, wrote a great deal about that. In fact, what many people consider his greatest writings uh, were on this very, uh, this very thing, but, but we don't have the time to, to get into that today. Let me give you some better illustrations. One, a triangle. A triangle has three sides, but yet it's all one. A triangle has three corners, yet it is all one. And in, in order to be a triangle, it is inseparable. It, it, is, it is three and it is one. Another is one to the power of three. One times one times one equals one. Okay? That's a much better illustration of the Trinity. One times one times one equals one. Notice, it's not one plus one plus one, okay, gets you three, that's tritheism. One to the power of three. That's a better illustration. And, and one of the ideas, the concepts that, that Augustine had, and we'll just get into this one just very briefly, it's the idea of mind, ideas, and words. 
all of those things are one. They cannot really be separated, but yet they are different. You know, my mind comes up with my, with my ideas, and then my words give, you know, outward expression to the ideas that my mind has created. They are three separate things, but yet they are inextricably linked together. Okay, so you guys get the idea? Those are better illustrations, particularly one to the power of three. That's probably my favorite. If, you, if you're ever going to try to explain the Trinity to somebody, don't use an egg, don't use water. Use one to the power of three or use a triangle. Those are much better illustrations. You know, you, you're, nothing, still, nothing is perfect. I realize the corners of a triangle are not people. They're not persons. However, it's a much better illustration. You know, we cannot fully understand God. Uh, I was reading Millard Erickson's Christian Theology, and he, he ended his, his part on the, on the Trinity uh, by giving this quote. And, and I guess it's not, he didn't say who it was attributable to, so I, I don't know who the quote comes from. It's probably, a, a, you know, an anonymous quote. But it says, try to, uh, try to explain it, you'll lose your mind. Try to deny it, you'll lose your soul. That's one of the great quotes about the Trinity. Try to explain it, you'll lose your mind. Try to deny it, you'll lose your soul. It's clearly taught in Scripture. It is orthodox Christian theology from the beginning of Christianity until the day Christ takes us home. And we will hold to that here at this church. It is hard, though. I get it. It's hard to understand. We can't completely fathom it. But the Bible says it's true, and that's what we teach. All right? Next week, we will deal with second part of theology proper. We will uh, finish our talk about the, uh, the Trinity. We will we'll talk about you know, the diff- what the different verses in the Bible say about the three persons of the Trinity and then them all together. Uh, and then we will finish out the attributes, the, you know, talking about God's omniscience, his, his omnipresence, his, his omnipotence. We'll talk about that all next week, okay? All right, that's where, we'll, that's where we'll be next week. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, uh, I'm just thankful for you. And, and without you, nothing exists. Uh, Lord, you loved us enough to create us. You loved us enough to give us the ability to, to think freely, which meant we rebelled against you, but yet you still loved us so much that you did that. And then beyond that, you loved us enough to create a remedy for that, and you sent your son to die for us. So, Father, we just love you. We, we uh, give you our adoration, uh, and, and we thank you for that you've communicated yourself to us that, that we can't really understand you we can understand as much as you've given us the ability to do and so father we thank you for that and we worship you and we ask this in the name of your son amen thank you guys our worship on the screen we got a rock star preacher who won't wake us from our dreams we want our blessings in our pocket we keep our missions overseas 
Gotta stop.